The Mac Observer's Mac Geek App, episode 810 for Monday, April 13th, 2020. Welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found. We take all that. We come up with some answers. We come up with some questions and tips and cool stuff found of our own. We mix it all together into an agenda. We loosely follow it. The goal being that each and every one of us learns at least five new things every single time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include Eero.com slash MGG. Barebones.com and merch.barebones.com, lino.com slash mgg and jamf.com slash mgg. We'll talk about why you have already visited those URLs because that's what you do for us uh, in a little bit here, more in depth. For now, with no great surprise, still here in Durham, New Hampshire, I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, this is. John F. Braun. It is John F. Braun. Awesome, man. Well, it's good to get back together. It's how it, uh, it's what we do. It's, I'm glad we get to do what we do. Let's, um, we've got some quick tips. Shall we just dive right in, John? Dive right in. All right, sweet. Uh, listener John, not that John, but listener John, uh, writes, he says, I found by accident, uh, that if you slide on the volume slider on, on iOS, so it, when the volume slider displays because you've hit the volume buttons, if you then slide your finger on it, uh, it will change the volume. And of course, sliding it all the way down mutes it. He says, I feel silly that I didn't know this, but maybe someone else missed it, too. No, that, that's the whole point of quick tips is the things that, you know, are obvious once you know them. But uh, he said he didn't find it documented anywhere, although maybe it is. Uh, we'll find out someday, I suppose. But uh, but thanks for the tip. That's great, John. Good stuff. Thoughts on that, Mr. Braun? <sighs> Isn't there something where if you hold down on it, you get uh, more? I thought there was another one where if, if you if you hold down on it, you get a uh, more detailed. Uh, I think that may be true on iOS. I don't know. Uh, I know on the Mac, if you have the volume slider up and in like in the menu bar and you use the option key, you can get mm -hmm. a more granular, uh, a fine tuned adjustment, I believe so. Uh, oh, KiwiGram in the chat room at live.macgeekab.com is saying that in Control Center, you can, that's where you're, you're thinking of maybe, John, is, is you can press and hold in Control Center and then get some more uh, granular adjustments there. So, yeah, cool. Yeah, Thank it's you. It's not doing it for me, but I'll play with it later. Okay. Yeah, that's right. We, gotta, we just got this quick thing, quick thing to do right now. Uh, all right. Uh, Bob reminds us of uh, these days when we are spending a lot of time on our computers, especially in video conferences and or podcasting. This is where I use this tip all the time. But uh, but he reminds us that on our Macs, we can option click our way to distraction free bliss by option clicking the little notification center icon in the very upper right corner of our menu bar. Because that will put it on do not disturb for 24 hours. 
there are other ways to do this too. You can pull down notifications or you can click on notifications and then uh, pull down from there or scroll down and also see the do not disturb, but option clicking on that will do it. They still live up in the notification center. So you can see them anytime you want. They just don't pop up on the screen. And when we're podcasting, I find that very valuable so that we can stay focused on you folks. But, uh, but it's also great for those zoom meetings or whatever, where people can see that you're distracted and checking your email and looking at your messages. And maybe that's not the best thing in those moments. So um, limiting the, the temptation is good. So distraction free bliss. Thank you, Bob. That comes from Dr. Mac in Austin. Good stuff. I think, right. Same Bob. Yeah, that's right. Thoughts on that, John, do you use that? When we podcast, do you use it? Um, Would you please? First off, <laughs> uh, he's not a real doctor, but um, that's your no. opinion. No, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen his degree, but um, uh, no, I really don't. I don't do do not disturb. I, okay. I leave my phone on. Yeah, I leave my phone on. Uh, almost. But this isn't the phone. This is a, this is on the Mac. Right. No. Well, I know okay. The all right. Okay. Just wanted to make it clear for the listeners. Yeah. Okay. But you but, don't uh, even uh, use as do far not- as. Sorry. No, I don't. It, wow. That was my comment is, yeah, I don't use do not disturb. Even when you're asleep, like you don't have auto do not disturb on on your phone. Nope. Wow. So what happens when I text you in the middle of the night, like and send you a, a message or something for you to see when you wake up? Uh, I suppose the phone buzzes, but, you know, I'm oh, asleep and not easily got woken. It. OK, so it doesn't. I, I see. So you, you have your own sort of uh, biological do not disturb set. So. That's good. Okay, good. Cool. Cool. Or, or at least a logistical do not disturb. The phone's not close mm-hmm. enough to you to buzz and wake you up. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Good. Uh, one more quick tip while we're, but, but that is a, that is sort of the, the bonus tip. If you don't know is that you can go into settings on your iPhone uh, into do not disturb and set a time for when do not disturb automatically kicks in and kicks out on a daily basis. That's, um, that that can be a really handy thing. I think I, I, I certainly enjoy it. Although there are times when, you know, I think I have it set for like 11 PM and I don't really go to sleep until like one or something uh, usually. So uh, there are times when it's like, Oh yeah, I missed that notification or whatever, but maybe as I'm winding towards bed, maybe that's not such a bad thing. I don't know. I don't know. All right. Uh, one last quick tip for us today. Listener, Greg, uh, says, I just realized again on iOS that if you pinch to zoom in on the text bubble that you want to select in messages, then it will select that text bubble. So you pinch to zoom on the text bubble. Now it's selected to be even more accurate, zooming out horizontally on the right, uh, right on the text bubble. And it will select just that bubble. If you touch another bubble while doing it, it will select that too. So that's interesting in terms of selection. He says, uh, normally, if you want to delete a text bubble, you have to tap and hold and then select more. But if you do this pinch to zoom to select it, uh, the selection dots will appear on the left right away. He says it's uh, not very exciting, but very useful. No, that's great. If you want to delete a message, you can just zoom and uh, and you're good to go. So I, I kind of like it. I think that's pretty cool. It's good. Yeah. yeah. All right, oh, man, we got some cool stuff found here to do as well, John. You know what, though? I want to take a minute if you're actually I, I, I hope you're OK with it, because I really want to take a minute and talk about our first two sponsors. If uh, if that's OK with you, Mr. Braun. Absolutely. 
All right. Look, we've all been there with horrible Wi-Fi. We talk about this on the show all the time. And that's why we use our first sponsor here, Eero, at Eero.com slash MGG. Listen, it's not worth having horrible Wi-Fi, especially right now when we're spending so much of our time in our houses with all of the people that live in our houses with us. You need good coverage everywhere and this is what Eero not only set out to do, but continues to do, right? Before Eero, it was a mess of either not having the right coverage or the headache of managing, you know, multiple devices with multiple interfaces and all of that. No, with Eero, you have one interface that manages all of the mesh points in your home, their router portion of the mesh point is fantastic it's got everything that you need in it including buffer bloat protection with their smart queuing management so that all your uploads aren't just completely cratering your network experience they know what you need and they've put it in their products it's great and for a limited time Eero mesh wi-fi starts at just 79 bucks You'll have a consistently strong signal wherever you need it, just like me and John do. It sets up in minutes, plugs right in. So no more Netflix buffering in the master bedroom. No more kids complaining that their Xbox isn't getting a signal. Good signal on all your video conferences and all of that stuff. It's great, and you can get yours fixed as soon as tomorrow. Go to eero.com slash mgg and enter code mgg at checkout to get free overnight shipping with your order. That's eero.com slash mgg. Code mgg at checkout to get your Eero delivered with free overnight shipping. And you got to use this URL to get the offer. You've got to go to eero.com slash mgg and use code mgg. Our thanks to Eero for sponsoring this episode. Have you ever wanted to learn better how to use grep, you know, regular expressions? Did you know that you could use BBEdit 13 to help teach you that stuff? I mean, we talk a lot about BBEdit on this show, and of course, they're our next sponsor here. Uh, it can do all the things that we always mention, the word counting, the file comparison, the coding with the styling so that you know where you are in your code and uploading and downloading direct from FTP servers and, you know, version control integration, all of that stuff. Yeah. But it can also teach you grep regular expressions because they've got these cheat sheets and a little like thing that you can experiment with and all that stuff. I have struggled for years trying to, I don't use grep often enough to actually just know it in my fingers, you know, and having the playground here and the cheat sheets to get things done in BB edit has been so amazing. So you got to check that out at barebones.com. But while you're there, you can go to merch.barebones.com. That's M-E-R-C-H dot barebones.com. And there you can, you know, buy some uh, swag, like a nice T-shirt, like the Rebus T-shirt that, uh, that John and I have, or just the, uh, you know, the BB Edit Vintage tee that's got the uh, logo and the It Still Doesn't Suck logo slogan, I should say, right on there. You got to check this out. Go to either barebones.com or merch.barebones.com. Download your free 30-day trial of BB Edit, and then after that, it can actually still be free. You just lose some features, but, uh, but you know, depending on what you're doing with it, that might still be enough. Go check it out, barebones.com, merch.barebones.com. Go learn yourself some grep. 
Our thanks to Barebones and BB Edit for doing what they do and sponsoring this episode. All right, Sean. Well, let's, uh, cool stuff. Let's, in fact, let's stick with the cool stuff theme and go to some cool stuff found. We'll start with listener Matt, uh, who tells us, he says, I was listening to episode 808 yesterday on my daily walk and heard the piece about Zoom making your fans ramp up. That inspired me, he said, to to think about an app that I've used before called App Police. He says it's a bit of a sledgehammer approach as it would only allow you to set a max limit for processor percentage. Uh, but that can really work. He says, for instance, with something like Zoom, he says you could use App Police to limit it to, say, 40 percent to keep your Mac from hanging up. Now, of course, limiting the CPU usage of any given app can cause that app to uh, to underperform. But that's sort of the point. If you want to leave room for your other apps uh, to, to do what they need to do, using something like App Police can be cool. It's available for free. It's on uh, 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 GitHub. We'll, of course, put a link in the show notes. But um, that's pretty cool. I'd never heard of App Police before, John. Had you? No. I wonder what they're uh, wonder if they're doing like a nice or. or some secret Unixy thing underneath the covers. And I, just I think it's give you it, a nice interface I, to it. It, it. It might be. I don't know. I know um, the other one that that I use, which is from uh, it's called App Tamer from St. Clair Software, which are the same people that make like default folder and stuff. Uh, that one does a little bit more. It it actually is kind of getting in there and and controlling processors or controlling the way a process works. But that's pretty awesome because it can. You can set that to only slow something down if it's in the background or if it's hidden, uh, which can be really handy. That I use, uh, especially when I had the older machine up here in the studio, I would use that while podcasting to keep like, um, you know, spotlight from deciding, hey, now's a great time to do an index because he hasn't clicked the mouse or hit a key in a long time. It's like, well, yeah, I haven't hit the key or clicked the mouse because I'm doing a thing. But that's cool, you know. Uh, so anyway, it, you know, app tamer is also cool. We'll put a link to app tamer in the show notes too, but app police, like you said, sounds like a, a bit of a sledgehammer approach, but, um, but there's nothing wrong with that. That can, that can work. Peter Gabriel loves sledgehammers. So, you know, there you go. All right. Uh, sorry. I got that visual in my head as soon as you started talking. About it. <laughs> I know it's a cool video too. It is. It is. Yeah. 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 He's, um, he's an interesting dude. Um, all right. Uh, speaking of geeky tools, Bruce brings us to one called Hacken Tool. Uh, it's I don't know that any of us would or even should use this for its intended purpose. Uh, at least not. There's no reason to use it on a an Apple Mac, but it is built for people that are running Hackintoshes so that you can patch the CPU, I believe, or maybe the firmware to support different features and act more like a Mac so that Mac OS is happier running on it. But when you run this again, it's a free thing available on GitHub and we have a link in the show notes. But when you run Hacking Tool, it will show you so much information about your processor and your computer and all of this stuff. So it's a pretty cool little thing just to have around. Um, I, I, I was very amazed at what it knew about my my cpu and everything and uh, you know i think it had build dates and all that stuff so it can really get a lot of information out of polling it so anyway you messed with it right john 
No, but when I looked at this, one of the screenshots, ah. I was like, you know, that looks a lot like, uh, what's the other one that we we like? And they, ju they just upgraded it. Machine Profile is another one that's pretty cool. Is that but from, from what I can see, this shows... Right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one, too, that shows you a lot of, uh, yeah, where, where the machine was manufactured and, and all of that stuff. But the, this looks to display quite a bit more information. It's crazy how deep it goes. I know. I didn't, I, like, I didn't know that kind of information was available to software, but hey, you know, cool. All right. On the cool stuff found list next is Nick, who uh, says in the last episode in 809, you discussed solutions to get airplay audio into an existing system. I use a much simpler solution. He says the Ace Max M5 AudioCast adapter is just a little puck with a micro USB port on one end for power and a three and a half millimeter jack for audio out. I've been using it for about four months and it works great. It's simple to set up. It, it advertises a little ad hoc Wi-Fi network uh, so that you can tell it to join your real Wi-Fi network. That's how you connect to this thing with a little web interface and stuff. And then you're up and running. He says the only drawback is it doesn't come with its own power brick, but everyone has a way to get USB power to their various devices these days. Yeah, we've we've talked about this thing before, but then it went like off the radar, unavailable, couldn't reach him or anything. But it seems like it's back. I think it's like 40 bucks at Amazon. And it sure looks like it is a um, a uh, um, it looks like it's a hardware puck running. The app that we talked about last week that the listener had put on his Raspberry Pi, I think. So I, I think it's it's it, you know, it looks like it's leveraging all this open source stuff, which is, hey, I mean, that's great if they can pull it together and you don't have to buy the Raspberry Pi and it's all already installed for you. Well, hey, that's good for them. That sounds works for me. So any thoughts on that, John? No, no. All yeah. right. Uh, why don't you tell us about the next thing that you stumbled onto this week, my friend? Yeah, so we both missed this one. Um, so we were talking about Flame and how uh, Flame, uh, because of like the, the cross-platform architecture they have now with, uh, what's that tool called? Bonjour? No, no, uh, Apple's a, a framework for letting you bring things over to macOS and iOS. Oh, with uh, uh, Project Catalyst. Yes, that's it. Right. And then I was musing, wow, I wonder if another tool that I use that uh, monitors networks has something similar. And you were like, oh, yeah, well, Fing has like a, a browser based version. And I'm right. like, well, that's interesting. I'm like, well, well, let me search around. And apparently it, uh, around January, I think when I looked at their blog, they released something called Fing Desktop, which is for both Mac and uh, Windows, I believe. And dude, this thing uh, so one, it's free, which which boggles my mind because this has this knows a lot of stuff, which actually, you know, speaking about knowing stuff. Yeah, <laughs> um, uh, it basically lets you visualize your network and it will uh, uh, it'll it'll show you all of the devices on your network and actually has kind of a uh, unsettling amount of detail about a lot of things, Dave. Mm -hmm. Um It'll it'll test your internet connection. They have a little background, um, I guess, helper app yeah. that will actually uh, probe your network and tell you if your connectivity is uh, is being disrupted. Oh, 
Huh? Yeah, like for example, it just came up this morning. It was like, yeah, you know, I wasn't able to. Uh, I think they got to fix it up a bit. So, for example, it said, "Oh, connectivity warning. I can't see Netflix." It's like, oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. So I think huh. it. So I think it pings major websites. Uh, but then I get a message like a minute later saying, "Oh no, no, everything's cool." But the amount of detail that it shows about all your devices, Dave. So I'm looking here, and it's like, oh yeah, I see that you got an iPhone eight, and it's running iOS thirteen point four. I'm like, how do you know this? Oh wow. <laughs> So or it like sees my MacBook this, Pro. You're running this mm -hmm. on your Mac and it knows things about a phone that it just sees floating on your network. It, it, it will probe your network and yeah, any, yeah, yeah, yeah. any device that it sees, anything wow. that has an IP address. Huh? Or it's like, oh, yeah, I see your MacBook Pro. It's running Mac OS Catalina. Here, here's another one. It's like, oh, yeah, I see your disk station. By the way, it's a DS918 Plus. Again, I'm like, how do you know this? Huh? <laughs> Well, these things must advertise it in their yeah in their hardware profiles. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so so they they probably put some code together to uh, yeah yeah you know query your devices. But if you want a picture of your network, um, and maybe seeing if people are on your network that shouldn't be, uh, this looks like a great tool. Cool, cool. All right, uh, another great tool because that's what cool stuff found is mostly about. Gary writes in and he says, uh. He says, I download a lot of radio shows and such where I go to a website and there's a list of MP3s or something that I want to download all of them. He says, I've been using Safari and right clicking each link individually. He says, uh, I just used Fire and, and, and now I just use Firefox and the add on download them all. It auto downloads all the MP3, fi MP3 files on a Web page in a single click. He says, saves me a lot of effort. That way I don't miss anything, but it also saves a ton of time. He says, he says, uh, you know, if only I'd known about this earlier. So, yeah, I had no idea about that one. That's uh, that's great. So we'll put a link in the, in the show notes. I don't think it exists for Safari, but uh, but it certainly exists for Firefox. So, you know, just, it, and I, it's always good to have multiple browsers available on your Mac uh, just to because sometimes one browser gets wonky, as we found. Oftentimes, that one browser that gets wonky is Safari, but it does seem to be a whole lot more battery efficient than the other browsers available. So for the most part, I use Safari, but, you know, it doesn't have everything. So, yeah. Cool. Thanks, Gary. Yeah. Yes, Mr. Have Mark. you tried um, have you tried Edge? Microsoft Edge? Uh-huh. Yeah, mm -hmm. we we talked about it on the show, let's say last July or something, like right when it first came out. And or two years ago, July or something. I mean, I, I do. I have it on my on my Mac. It's it's fine. Yeah. I mean, is there? Do you use it? Do you find a a benefit to it? I have not yet had a need. So okay. there are very few web pages that I go to that don't work on Safari. But sure. there are some. Right. And usually, my next option is Firefox. I usually find that Firefox is able to figure it out if Safari okay. can't. Yep. But no, I should try theirs. Um, yeah. You know, they, they do good stuff. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. All right. And a uh, hardware cool stuff found from listener Ken. The Mi Audio EarBoost EB1 earphones. Um, they're Bluetooth wireless earphones that have uh, adaptive audio enhancement in them. They're only 50 bucks. I have not tried these yet. Uh, Ken says they sound great. I have experimented with some of the other me stuff. M E E audio is what the company's name is. And it like the, the I've used some of their wired earphones for the prices that they charge. 
They're fantastic. It, they're great sort of backup headphones to have if you're a, a audio snob like me. And if you're not an audio snob, you might actually find that they're totally fine for everything. Uh, I keep a, an extra set in my gig bag, uh, you know, just to have if I need them on stage or whatever, because they're, you know, they're inexpensive enough that if something happens, I'm not going to be heartbroken about it. So. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Thank you for uh, for mentioning these. They have not tried their Bluetooth ones, but that's that's what these are. So um, they've got little nubs to kind of sit in your in your ears uh, fairly well. So, yeah. Cool. Thank you, Ken. Good stuff. Thanks, everybody, for all the cool stuff found. That's um, I know we know that it's often an expensive portion of the show. But actually today, I think maybe other than the, the earphones, I think the app tamer, which really was just an aside. Uh, I think everything else is available for free. So it's good. Shall we do a few questions, John? Uh, I don't know. I think we should. Oh, that, that was a question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Should we? I'm sorry. No, that wasn't a question. That was a statement. But uh, No, yes, I think it was please. a question. I think so. Mm-hmm. I think it was. Yeah. All right. Uh, Jim writes. Uh, he says, I'm sure I'm responsible for this, but... One of my external hard drives is being seen as a time machine drive, even though it's actually a standard partition of an external hard drive. If you look at the picture that he sent us, you know, and sure enough, it's the, the drive shows a time machine drive. that's actually a time machine drive with the icon and then shows another drive that's labeled like, you know, Western digital photos or something that also has the time machine icon. Uh, he says, uh, can you help me remove the time machine designation from that photos drive without destroying the huge library of photos that I have stored there? As I said, I can write to the drive. I can move files around. I can copy and move files to and from it. It does not act like a time machine drive other than its icon. Uh, he says, I've checked the properties and get info and disk utility. I can't find anything to alter this, but the icon keeps showing up as a time machine drive. What to do? So the first thing to do if you want to change your drive icon is to click on the uh, go in to highlight the drive in the finder, go to file, get info or hit command I if you're so inclined and click on the icon and then go to edit and choose cut. Now the icon will be on your clipboard and not on the drive and it would revert to a default drive icon that will work in almost all cases. And it's also in reverse, how you put an icon on a drive, you copy the icon to your clipboard and then you go and you paste it in um, uh, on the drive and that then you can customize your drive icons, which is great. That did not work for Jim because this drive uh, Mac OS has decided that it is a time machine drive. So the question is why? And Jim sussed it out. Um, we told Jim, go ahead and look on the drive and look at everything. So in the finder to see everything, including hidden files, open up the drive and then do command shift period, which toggles the display of hidden files on and off and take a look, see if something there doesn't seem right. And sure enough, and I don't even think it was hidden, but it might've been, but I don't think so. There was a folder called backup DB dot or backup dot backup DB. And that is the folder that Time Machine will write to. And evidently, as soon as the system sees a backup.backupdb folder sitting on your drive, it thinks it's a Time Machine drive. So it gives it that icon. Jim, remove that 
uh, he, with trepidation, Jim removed that folder and then rebooted his Mac and all was good. So I think it's when the drive mounts, it takes a look and, dis- and makes that distinction. So deleting it, uh, he needed to unmount the drive and remount it. And of course, rebooting uh, accomplishes that too. And that solved the problem. So now you know two ways to change volume icons. The, 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 the main way and then this way. So if you want to give your drive a time machine icon for no good reason, I think putting a backup.backupdb folder on there with a capital B, if, I'm, if memory serves, would be the trick. But I don't know that you want to do that. You could. So what do you think, John? Interesting. I know. Yeah. I think at one point it may have been a time machine drive and because that Possibly. stuff was left over. Yeah. Yeah, that, that must have been it. I don't think it just... Or you may have tried to use it at one point as a time machine drive and then maybe bailed on it, but it, it had placed that little folder there. Yeah. Know. Yeah. But it's interesting that, that that's how Mac OS decides, like the things we learn, right? That That's why we do the show. Five things. So we're counting them down, you know. All right. Uh, Larry, uh, now that we've talked about the icons, let's talk about the names. Larry says... Um, I know that I can rename the partitions or volumes on a drive, either in the finder or in disk utility, but can I name the physical drive itself uh, rather than using the arbitrary names that the Mac gives it? You know, I, I and he sent a screenshot of his uh, disk utility. And if you in disk utility, I think you have to go to um, it's uh, the view menu and choose show all devices because by default disk utility only shows volumes, and so you wouldn't see any of the stuff that uh, that Larry's talking about here. But if you go in Disk Utility to view show all devices, then you will see, you know, for me, I see inter- on the internal bus, Apple SSD, you know, SM0, probably some SM0512F media, a model number. External, I have an old Buffalo drive on this machine, so I see Buffalo HD PATU3 media. And then I've got a, a Samsung C drive that evidently has a Samsung mechanism in it because it says Samsung MZ yada 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 media or whatever. And Larry wants to change those yada yada yadas. You can't. Those are advertised to macOS by the drive itself. It's in the firmware of the drive. And I tried editing them in disk utility, but you can't. I don't think it's a it's Apple's name for it. It is its own name for itself. And that's what it advertises to the Mac. And so the Mac just displays that so that you can suss out which device is which. Although it would be nice if you could add a reference name to it. But uh, but this is just displaying whatever the drive uh, advertises on its own. So unfortunately, that you can't change, but you can change the name of a volume. So uh, except if it's a if it's a, a, a Catalina volume with the split of the two um you know, the, the, like the hard drive name and then the, the boot drive name and then the boot drive dash data. I don't know that you want to be messing around with that in disk utility. You might be better off changing that in the finder and letting Mac OS kind of do its magic. But my guess is, and I'm not going to try this right now, that if you tried changing it in disk utility, it might also warn you of that. So I don't know. I can't test it right now. What do you think, John? Um, I'm with you. I'm, I'm looking in disk utility. So yeah, uh, if you right click on, on the drive yeah. name itself, there's a rename option, or you could do it from the finder as well. If you right click on your drive, you right. can say rename and then call it. Like mine is, what? I haven't changed it from the default, is Macintosh HD. Uh-huh. Interesting. Yeah, I um, 
I, I started years ago with this whole thing of uh, naming naming my drives after Miles Davis songs. Now, he was a prolific songwriter, so I, there's a lot and I haven't exhausted them, but I will someday. So I need to choose my next naming scheme that I will move to. And I, I haven't I, honestly, I haven't put a lot of thought into it yet, but I, I need to spend a lot of time thinking about that. So uh, maybe that'll be an afternoon meditation one week or something. So I don't know. I need to decide. I need to come up with something, John. Yeah. I can't. I can't. At one point, I named my. At one point, I named my printers um, after Monty Python. So I had one mm. printer called Dingo and one called Zoot. Uh, and if you nice. get that reference, then you are well versed in. Yeah. The Holy Grail. Yeah, I like that. That's good. That's good, man. All right. Uh, Michael asks us, I've seen this and I don't have an answer for this. At least I haven't had an answer when I've seen it uh, in in the wild in the past. So this might very well be a geek challenge. He says, can I please ask if you've uh, covered this before? I get this dialogue that comes up that says to use the quote unquote Java command line tool, you need to install a JDK. Click more info to visit the Java developer kit, download website, and you've got more info or okay. Uh, I, where I have seen this before, Michael is on actually one of my neighbors, his MacBook pro does this every time his machine boots up. And sometimes even just when it wakes up, I have not spent hours and hours looking, but I've spent a little bit of time looking to see like what process is catalyzing this. Like what's the trigger that's saying in order to run, I need Java, but it, the title of the window doesn't give you any indication as to what's trying to run Java. So it's very, very unclear uh, as to the, the way to solve this problem would be to. Well, there's two ways, right? One, you could just lean in and install a Java developer kit and then whatever app wants to run will have the JDK and it will be able to run. But if you have been doing fine without that app running, maybe it's not the best idea to just sort of willy nilly install stuff for random pieces of software. So the other way would be to figure out which app it is that's trying to run this and remove it. I don't know how to figure that out, or at least I haven't sussed that out yet, John. Have you? No, and I found a post here that suggests uh, it has something to do with Apple's legacy Java 6 installation. That, that, yeah. That's correct. The question is, what's trying to leverage Java 6? In the chat room at live.macgeekab.com, Kiwi Graham is saying uh, old Adobe apps are a common culprit. So uh, something from, you know, Adobe CS3 days, he said, might very well be it. And Paul Franz is... Uh, speculating that it might be an old install of crash plan or open office. So these would be places to look uh, because you're going to have to go with your gut or I guess you could, well, if it's happening on boot, you could look in, you know, system preferences, users and groups, login items to see what there might be it or run Lingon to see what is trying to run via launch D um, Lingon X or Lingon 10, I think would be the appropriate one now. Uh, but that, that would be, um, yeah. Yeah. So that would be the other way to do it. Uh, any more thoughts, John? Uh, I thought there was a, uh, 
there there are a few folders where there are things. Um, so there's startup items which I'm I'm looking at on my machine, and actually there's nothing in it. Um, system information will let you look at that. Sure. Uh, but I, I don't have any. And the other is, I think, launch daemons and launch items, is it? There, there's like three folders where there's stuff that gets run. Okay. Uh, and and yeah, you may be able to look at that list. Yeah, like you said, with Lingon is probably the best tool. Right, right. And then see something that has the word Java in it? I don't know. Yeah, right. Ask that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, but it might not. It might just be a... Yeah, it could. You're right. Digging around and looking in the packages, you might see... Something about, you know, Java or yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. All right. Well, uh, John, I would love to take a minute here and talk about our next two sponsors that work for you, my friend. Please do. All right. Look, you're at home. You're working from home. That's fine. That's what works right now. But you don't want to host a server from home, nor do you need to, because our next sponsor here, Linode, at linode.com slash MGG, is the place where you want to put your server. Now, whether it's for your development environment, whether it's for a WordPress site, whether it's to host your own VPN, whatever it is, you can do all this stuff at Linode. If you're a geek like me and you like the command line, you can do that. If you're not, or even if you are, but you don't want to have to deal with the command line all the time, no problem. Linode's cloud manager at cloud.linode.com allows you to set up your server without ever touching a command line. You don't even have to know that the command line exists because they have all these templates for servers right there. So you tell it what you want to do, what kind of server you want to spin up. Boom, it spins it up for you. Then you log in, you do your thing. All good. All their servers are hosted on SSDs, right? We've been talking about that here. And that makes things efficient and fast. Even their $5 a month Nanode server is hosted on SSDs. That same 40 gigabit network that connects all their servers is connected to that one. And as long as you go to linode.com slash MGG, you get a $20 credit automatically added to your account. You know what that means? You can have some fun playing without paying and then eventually you'll pay because you know you're going to keep using it but they want you to play they want you to experiment go play linode.com slash mgg our thanks to linode for sponsoring this episode our next sponsor is jamf now that's jamf.com slash mgg is where you'll go because jamf now makes it super easy to set up manage and secure all your Apple devices. So Jamf now is a mobile device management security platform. It allows you to enforce passcodes. You can enforce encryption. You can remotely lock or remotely wipe a device. Jamf now ensures that you have all the security settings you need. So your Apple devices and the information on them are all untouchable just the way you want it. And with Jamf now, you can set passcode requirements. You can place a device in lost mode from anywhere so that you can secure your devices and focus on what you need to do. And you don't need any IT experience to do this. Jamf now is super easy. In fact, you can do it for the devices you have even in your home, especially if you just want to experiment a little bit. But the nice part is you can experiment and start securing your business today because you're a Mac Geekab listener, by setting up your first three devices for free. That's right. 
So your first three devices, up to three devices, always free. After that, they start at just $2 a month per device. So you got to go create your free account today at jamf.com slash MGG. That's jamf.com slash MGG. Our thanks to Jamf now for sponsoring this episode now. All right, John. And, you know, it's interesting because we have a follow up to an episode about three weeks ago. Uh, Listener John says, uh, I was listening to show 807 and the guy who called in and found himself homeschooling and wants to limit app usage on his kids devices. He says this sounds like a perfect case for Jamf now. Uh, He says it will definitely help him to not get caught so i like it thank you listener john that's great good stuff all right um listener jd also has a follow-up to a recent episode john and uh we were talking two weeks ago he says you discussed running short of ip addresses on your home network he says there is an easy fix as long as your router can handle all the extra devices uh and it does not include the introduction of ipv6 He says, as long as your whole network is provisioned by DHCP and that your third octet is zero, uh, he says you can change the DHCP server's subnet mask from slash 24 to slash 23, meaning you change the subnet from 255.255.255.0 to 255.255.254.0. And the new network network now permits 510 devices with a single broadcast domain up from the 254. So, well, yeah, he says a smarter move would be to set up a guest Wi-Fi network for all your IOT devices, your Internet of Things devices, and split things out that way. And then you have two separate networks, each of about 250 devices. And that would be a way to go. What do you think, Mr. Braun? Here's how you, here's how you decode this. The thing is, for, for, for a while, I didn't quite understand the slash 24 and slash 23 stuff when you're defining a network. Slash yeah. 24 is the same thing as 255.255.255. How do you extract that? How do those map to each other? Yeah. Well, it's 24 bits. That's what that's saying. Because if you look, all the one bit, so 255.255.255 is three groups of eight bits that are all on. Right? Okay. Eight times three sure. is 24. Just thought I'd share that because for the longest time I was scratching my head over how you, you come up with that. The other thing occurred to me is that, I mean, you could just go for broke, but I think I understand why you wouldn't want to is that, so say, for example, you have a, a 10 network. So a for, 10 for your, dot, uh, 10 dot X dot X dot X network, you mean? Right. Okay. And there's three different ranges that they're called private IP addresses, I guess, if, if you search around for that. That's right. So there's 10, 172 and 192. If you have a full 10 network, that's actually, uh, let me see. 16, 16 million addresses. Uh, what else? 172 is about a million, and then 192, you can get uh, 65,000. Okay. But you probably don't want to do that because no normal human needs that many addresses. Well, and, you're, so you and your router's wanna... only got so much RAM in it, too, right? Like, at some point, your, your router needs to be able to manage all of this stuff coming in um, to mm-hmm. all these devices. And, I, you know, I mean... Home routers have certainly gotten more powerful over the years, but like not that powerful, I don't think <laughs> so. Yeah, I guess it's a, to me, it's just the question is, how do you even come up with this subnet mask? I mean, usually I would just 
type in like two five five two five five two five five and and yeah that worked be done so, right <laughs> right so i went with it but um no i'd like it it's a kind of geeky tip so yeah it you is. Wanna, yeah for sure all right uh you want to take us to chuck my friend and see uh we've got we got a couple of photos things for you this week mr braun yeah so let me get to uh let me get to our friend chuck here there we are all right so i had to do a bit of research on this one here so chuck says dear mac Gab, i'm a satisfied iMazing user mostly to back up my phone that was a tip i picked up from mac Gab. thanks you're welcome the update they just posted mainly relates to new photo capabilities but i don't know if i want or need iMazing to supplement iPhotos on my Mac or phone. I think he means um, uh, iCloud photos or iCloud photo library. I think sure. is what he's trying to say there. Um, I'm also not sure of the app and storage size that will result. Cur curiously, I have plenty of space on my phone, but little overhead left in a 2012 MacBook Air's 256 gig SSD. Since John is a photo maven, but I'm really not. <laughs> What's his take on this added functionality? So, uh, number one, I discovered that I was not running a recent version of iMazing. Ah. Um, just uh, iMazing uh, uh, Mini. And it would always yell at me that, you know, I was running an old version. I just never really paid attention to it. Sure. So, I was still doing the backups, but I didn't have the uh, app proper. So, I got with the program, downloaded the uh, app proper, and... Um, so yeah so there are two dot uh release which uh, i'm not sure exactly when that happened they included quite a few features to manage your photos from what i can see dave um if you're using icloud photos then what they're doing is kind of redundant but uh, in that oh. you can do a lot of the things that they do but if you're managing your photos just as a camera roll then these features may be welcome interesting Huh. Um, yeah, so they offer a number. So, you know, they give you better ability to view your albums. Um, let's see here. So so here's what you can do if you're, if you're not using, if you're just using iMazing to manage the photos. So one, uh, you can delete iPhone pictures um, using iMazing, which uh, may be nice. You can manage albums. Um, they also can do a conversion, so it'll out it'll translate from the HEIC to JPEG if you need to do that when you're bringing the photos over from the phone. Right. Um, but the one feature that caught my eye that I think may be useful in his situation since he was talking about space is that they will let you transfer photos to your iPhone or iPad from your computer. And it sounds like he's kind of uh, doesn't have a lot of space um, on his computer, you know, with that small, relatively small ssd sure so um huh so he that, that that feature he may find useful um the only thing is that they do have a warning when they talk about this feature photo albums transferred from a mac or pc to an ios device with iMazing itunes or the photos app are not included in the backup of the ios device so you right. should never rely on ios photo albums for long-term storage of your photos is what they say that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. They, yeah, they excluded those a while back. They used to include them, I know, but oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Cool. All right. And, so, iMason uh, keeps getting better. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's great. I like it. That's cool. Um, we, uh, uh, Carrie 
in the uh, chat room over on Facebook at the live stream mentioned uh, an uh, app or actually a website, I guess, called IP Calculator uh, to help calculate those subnets that we were talking about in uh, the last segment with JD. So um, so we'll put a link to that in the show notes, too, for those of you that are interested in, in that sort of geekiness or want to avoid the geekiness and just calculate it and get it right. So uh, either way, helpful. Uh, let's stick with the photos thing. You want to take us to Ralph, John? Yes. And Ralph has a photography question. Do you know of a third-party app for macOS that can edit the EXIF data in a photo file? What app is most popular amongst photographers using the Mac? Hmm. This function is available in the macOS app Photos. However, I'm test driving a third-party photo management photo editor app, Luminar 4, which does not have this function. There are several third-party apps that perform this function. Is there one that is considered best in breed? Um, I so I, I dug into my archives, Dave, um, and I actually did find uh, one of our pro photographer pals did reference um, a better finder rename. Okay. Um, but it only really does, I think, uh, you know, like renaming of the file based on the EXIF data, which sometimes. Oh you need because sure. the name that whatever your camera or something gives the photo is, is kind of meaningless. You know, it's like a, yeah. a sequence number. So, um, but I think that's really all it can do. Okay. Um, now next up though, as far as a tool that I think a lot of people use and, and has a long history, if you look at it is called not surprisingly EXIF tool. Uh, to me, that looks to be like it, it if you want to modify EXIF data, this is it. Here's the bad news. It's only command line on the Mac. Though they do apparently have GUIs on Windows. So if you have a, a Windows environment, um, that may do it for you. Um, and I agree that photos will show you a lot of this data and let you set it, but it's really limited okay. in, in what it can do. Huh. So then here's something that I did, Dave, and I, I was kind of surprised at work. So I'm like, well, you know, let me use Spotlight and search for EXIF and see if I have anything kicking around on my machine. Yeah. And I got a match to an app called Meta Image. And I'm like, I don't remember installing that. Why huh. is that even coming up? I'll tell you why it came up, Dave. Because I, like you, last I checked, run Setapp. And Setapp oh. has it puts a directory on your machine. Right that has placeholders for all the apps and this app, the placeholder for it had a keyword set and the keyword was EXIF. So that's why it came up in my search of my machine. Nice. So then I actually ran it, Dave, and this, as far as I can see, it showed every EXIF. EXIF is data in addition to the photo that is that almost every camera stores in the photo and it can have uh, GPS coordinates, uh, you know, the lens, the ISO, the shutter speed, all sorts of things. And you may oh, want to change wow. that. From what I can see, Dave, when I ran this thing, it had a little edit icon next to every one of these values. And wow. apparently it also has some uh, integration with uh, photos as well. So um, huh. if you have setup, and you know, hey, go for it. Uh, I like it. You like it. Oh, and I, it yeah. What Setup's I like awesome. is that. What I do like is that every now and then I'll see a notification in the corner of my screen because I don't have Do Not Disturb on right. um, saying, hey, there's a new app in Setup. Why don't you check it out? And here's a little bit about what it does. So I like that, too. Um, if you don't have Setup and you'd like to uh, get this app, um, it's a company that I'd never heard of, but it's called Needed Apps. And 
you know, we'll provide a link to, uh, you can get a trial version of it and they sell it in the app store as well. I'm not sure why, and I'm not going to dig into it right now, but I couldn't visit neededapps.com on my Mac. It, I, um, it blocked me. I, I have my router set to like filter, you know, like porn and things like that out and it hit some wall involved there. So I don't know. I don't know what it is. I, I, I know that I have a notification sitting on my phone, which is way over there so that I'm not distracted. Uh, and I also have an email <laughs> about what happened and I'll dig into that after the show. But, but yeah, I just, I just tried to go there. I don't know what it's categorized at or why, but, um, but there you go. So okay. I need to add that to my whitelist. So, yep. So. Yeah, no, I just brought it up in yeah. Safari and, and it comes up here. Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, you don't have like parental controls or any of that stuff on your no, network. No, so, I don't. Yeah. So cool. All right. Um, all right. Let's go to let's go to Mike here, shall we? And Mike writes, he says, um, are the drives on the Thunder Bay floor actually hot swappable? So this is the other world computing's Thunder Bay Four. Um, he says the manual indicates the drives are hot swappable, but the OWC video about it recommends to power down the device to swap them out. What are your thoughts? Raid five drive reporting likely to fail. So here's the thing. Um, if you this is a uh, the Thunder Bay is a direct attached. Uh, it's essentially a JBOD, right? The uh, just a bunch of disks, but you know that's that's just how it works. And uh, and your Mac is probably the thing managing that RAID. I don't think. Uh, no, actually, this one has hardware RAID, right? I'm glad. Uh, no, is it hardware RAID? I don't think it is. It's uh, it's using no, it's using soft RAID, right? So. Uh, the uh, yeah, so your Mac via soft raid, presumably is managing the raid on this volume. And yes, with raid, if a drive dies, you can absolutely swap it while the volume is live. That's how it's supposed to work. And, and that's how this will work. Uh, this enclosure is built to be able to deal with you pulling a drive while it's running. I can see, though, why OWC would be cautious in having you do that. It's never great to do that. Like, it's better to let the drive spin down before you yank it. But if not, that's OK. Um, so you can do it. I don't I don't see any any reason why um, why you wouldn't be able to. Uh, if you had, if you weren't using this as the in the RAID five mode, you can use the the Thunder Bay as as just a bunch of disks. Um, if you were using that, then uh, it, in RAID five mode, you you know you unmount the drive, let it spin down, and then you know eject it and put a new one in, and that would be fine. But the RAID five one, they're always going to be up and running, and um, so you might be able to go into soft RAID and tell it to to you know stop using that drive and then and then swap it out, but. Uh, yeah, I don't see I don't see any reason why you couldn't do that. I, I let me put it this way. If it were me, I'd yank the drive while it was spinning. That's just kind of how I go. Uh, as long as I know that I'm yanking the right one. That's the that's the trick. So really make sure you know which one is the, the one that is being referenced as the bad one, because the last thing you want to do is yank a good drive while one other drive is failing. So but I would do it. I would yank it. How about you, John? 
My assumption is any multi-drive enclosure allows hot swap, but that may not be a safe assumption based on what they say. I don't yeah, know. well, it does allow it. I mean, they say that it allows it. They just don't mm. advise you to do it. Uh, Kiwi Graham in the chat room says, don't hot swap unless you have to. Uh, that's that's wise advice. Uh, he says accidents uh, when no redundancy is present do happen. And that's the that's the issue, right? Is, you know, you're yanking a drive out of a powered on unit. Does it impact the other drives? Did you grab the right one? You know, you when it's powered down, if you pull the wrong one and realize it, you can just put it back in and everything's fine. If it's powered up and you pull the wrong one and realize it, uh, you can put it back in. Everything will probably be fine. So, you know, yeah, Kiwi Graham's probably right that power it down, breathe, be intentional, measure twice, cut once, all of that stuff definitely applies. So I don't know. Any more thoughts on that one, John, before we move on? Uh, I'm with you. Okay. All right. Let's go to, uh, why don't you take us to Mace? We were talking about cable modems and Docs' status pages in the last episode. So uh, why don't you take us there? And I'll remind everybody that your cable modem, as long as it's actually a cable modem, so this doesn't apply to, say, Fios or, you know, any other non-cable type of thing, but your cable modem status page is almost certainly at 192.168.100.1, and we'll put that link in the show notes. But John, Mace had a question. Okay, and the question is not in the PDF, but it's in the email, which I have up here. Awesome. So, <laughs> okay, so uh, yeah, in 807, he says, thanks for pointing out this page. I wrote a bash script to query the page, grep the response, and display just the DVMV. That, that's pretty cool. Now, when I start seeing unacceptable performance, I'll be able to see if these numbers reflect that. Follow-up, which is this. Why multiple downloads and multiple uploads, or channels, is what he sees. What do the other columns measure and mean? You mentioned modulation, but never explained why I would care. And I'm going to tell you why you should care. Okay. <laughs> you should always care. So, for the most part, um, the values that are... Uh, that you should look at and will almost certainly indicate if there's a problem are the power levels and there are acceptable ranges for, for the power levels you should be seeing. But there's one other one. Well, let's and it was let's just remind people quickly of those acceptable power ranges in case they didn't listen last week. So on the downstream acceptable is, and we're looking at the column that measures power and it's in DBMV acceptable is negative 10 DBMV to positive 10 on the downstream and on the upstream you want it to be, I think conventional wisdom these days is between 40 and 50. Above 50, below 40, things can start to get wonky, and the same is true with the other range. So there you go. Just wanted to pave that way there. So put, we'll put some of these in the show notes. Moving. Right. Right. Now, the other value you may see um, is modulation. Um, and without getting into an electrical engineering course, it's basically the way that it encodes the data. But there is another value that you may want to look at, which would uh, almost certainly be out of range if uh, something is terrible. Like we, we remember, I, I guess your neighbor, Dave, had a case where modulation had actually said unknown. Yeah. Yeah. Modulation. <laughs> if you see unknown. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There should be something in there. And actually, uh, so another value you may want to keep in mind here is something called SNR or signal to noise ratio. Um. Every line has noise. And the thing is, you want this ratio to be as high as possible. And based on your modulation level, and it's in one of their 
tech support articles, they give guidance depending on the modulation scheme. So if it's QAM64, it should be 23 or greater. Mm. If it's QAM256 with your voltage between certain values, it should be 30 or greater. And uh, or and another uh, set of voltage values, they say, should be 33. Okay. So, so uh, just to give you guidance on that. Now, yes. our values, you and I check them and, and they're... In a good place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On on a Comcast modem, and so I'm on a, a Doxis three, but uh, a Doxis three point one. So I actually have three different types of channels uh, connected. I have my normal downstream, my normal upstream, and then downstream actually four downstream OFDM, which is the Doxis three port, and then upstream OFDMA. But I don't have any of that. They don't do that. Um, but on, on Comcast, that signal to noise ratio for me is just above 40. It's in the low forties for, for all of my channels. Um, and on the, uh, oh, I don't have one on the downstream on the upstream. That's right. It's downstream only. Yeah. So 40 dBmV on both on OFDM and on my QAM, uh, 256 channels. So, yeah. Yep. And mine is, is 38. Okay. So this is one of those things where it's good to learn what normal looks like, right? Go in when mm-hmm. everything's working great, has been working great for a couple of days at least, if not longer, right? Go and look, maybe take a screenshot, file it away in notes or something so that you have it. Uh, when things go wrong, you can compare the two and then you know, ah, wait a minute. Okay, this isn't. Uh, you know, this number's out of whack. The rest of these all still match normal, so I don't need to worry about them. So this is this is especially one of those things where knowing what normal looks like, because it's all going to look like gobbledygook if it's mm-hmm. the fir- if you're looking the first time that you have a problem, right? You need to know what normal looks like. You need to know how to compare and taking a screenshot or or just spending a, a, an inordinate amount of time in these screens so that it you know burns into your memory like we have. That's good too. So yeah, that's good. Right. Now, the question as to why are there all these channels, I think it's just for sake of efficiency. Yeah. Oh, no. Um, it's or, it's or for the, speed. It's not efficiency. Each well, channel. Efficiency for them managing it in that they, they hand out the number of channels that you need to get the advertised rate, right? Co- correct. That's exactly right. Yeah. The each channel can only transmit a, a, a certain amount of data. So it, each channel is only able to transmit, you know, a, a limited amount of speed. And so they multiply or add the channels together to get more speed. Generally speaking, that's that's how that's done. So, yeah, your cable modem and I will find well, there's a Wikipedia article that's great about um explaining what the maximum speed is with any number of channels. Cause like, like you said, John, you'll see in there, you'll see, uh, you know, X number of channels. So for example, if you have eight downstream channels bonded, your maximum throughput in the U S is 343 megabits per second in Eurodoxis, which evidently is a slightly different standard 444. So there you go. Uh, 16 channels down doubles that to 686 in the U S and so on and so forth. So for example, now you can, and we'll put a link to this chart um, in the, in the show notes so that you can know if you have the right cable modem by looking at what service you're, what speed you're paying for with your ISP. So let's say you're paying for 200 
uh, down and 10 up. Like that's a pretty common one these days. A little slow on the upstream mm -hmm. in my opinion, but most cable companies disagree with me. Uh, if you had a modem that was only four down, well, that's going to max out at 171 megabits. So that's not enough to get you your 200. You would want to go with a modem that has at least eight. Now, if you've got a you know system that's going to go more, well, you might want more. There's another reason you might want more, though, John, and that's uh, headroom. Because if things are a little overloaded on your local switch, even if you're only doing, you know, let's say you've got 250 megabit per second down, well, having 16 channels bonded now gives you a lot more headroom to hopefully get that speed out of more channels if things are bogged down. So theoretical maximum right. versus real life. Yeah. Yeah. Now I have 24. Okay. So I think they're doing exactly that. I think in theory, 24 channels can handle more than the current service that I get. But 24 channels can do just uh, just about a thousand megabits a second. Okay, and I think that's the fastest you can get from uh, from Cablevision right now. So, Got it. Uh, Got it. Okay, yeah. so they, yeah, so, and yeah. they keep pestering me to get more speed, though I don't really need it. <laughs> no. Well, you've got plenty of upstream. Like, that's the, to me, that's the key yeah. right there. Yeah, and you've got what, oh, I say plenty. 35. Yeah, it should be a thousand upstream if you... You know, like all of our mm. all of our uh, Fios listeners are laughing at us right now. Like, ah, you poor people on cable modems still stuck. So that's yes. Right. That correct. Because fiber tends to be symmetric and that you get the same up and down, whereas cable Usually. for whatever reason is not. Well, the cable now, the other system, things, the, mm. the, it's 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 not for whatever reason. I think I think the reason is that the cable system was built not in, initially built, not to deliver uh, internet access, but to deliver TV. So it was very much a one direction, you know, uh, with this little, like they, they need to blast data to our homes and only get a little bit of data back to watch TV. Like tell us what you want, change the channel, these sorts of things. So there needed to be some path on the upstream, but not the same width because they were sending all this TV data to us, you know, over the pipe. And then of course, you know, we, now have that infrastructure everywhere and so that's why they can't give us more upstream because it's just not built to do it now they they should and i think are be you know rebuilding things because yeah the the uh the fiber pipes that are out there for like fios and stuff are totally built to be internet pipes so sure we go same mm -hmm. both directions why wouldn't we yeah let's i think that's yeah. the reason now the other thing you may find interesting is that so similar to Wi-Fi, um, each of these channels has a frequency uh, similar to broadcasting on a certain frequency. Okay. The width of it, Dave, which I'm going to take a leap here. So I see that I have two channels next to each other, 567 and 573 megahertz. I'm going to say... Uh, uh, what are you going to say? Um... So wait, is that 67, 60, uh, so is that six megahertz there? I don't know, but I'll, I'll believe you. Let's say it is. Calculator would help, right? Sorry, six. All right. Okay. So the channel is six megahertz. Now, Wi-Fi channels also have a width. Oh, I um, see. Yeah, right. And then you got the modulation scheme. And I think the, the thing you're linking to will show this, but uh, if you do the math, you, you can kind of glean 
how much each channel, uh, the, the maximum of each channel is. Right. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's right. No, based on the width and the modulation. That's that's exactly it, which is why for like my connection here is a, a gigabit connection, a cable modem gigabit. So gigabit, actually more than a gigabit down, 1.21 gigabits per second uh, down and then whatever, 40 megabits per second up. I have 32 channels of downstream in my modem and they're all locked and not a one of them is used because I am using a different modulation for the one channel that delivers me a gigabit connection. And that's the OFDM modulated channel uh, that that. And, and so the different modulation scheme gets you faster data or more data sent across across faster than uh, than the, you know, than the older uh, modulation scheme does. So, yeah, cool. Right. Now, there was one last thing I noticed on the status page, Dave, which I think should be of concern to our friend. So in addition to all this stuff about the channels, um, the cable modem will also show you, well, at least on the Aris, they call it interface parameters. Now, I'm looking at mine, and I you know, bought my uh, Doxus 3 one recently, but it says LAN enabled state up speed, 1000 megabits per second, which is gigabit Ethernet which is what my network is right now. Um, his only showed 100, which to me is bad. Oh, yeah. Unless his cable... that's a bottleneck. That would be a bottleneck. Unless his service, unless his service is... Less than 100. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely yeah. So right. It, so, it could, so it could be, in which case, yeah, that's fine. But uh, if, if he's paying for service faster than 100 megabits per second he's not going to get it <laughs> that's right so yeah that's a great point make sure your cable modem is not bottlenecking things and i would presume but i hate to assume that if a cable modem had more than uh than four channels bonded and even four would would, would get would put you above that uh more than two channels bonded really will get you above um uh, 100 megabits that they would put a gigabit Ethernet port in it. But clearly some of them don't. And then the other thing to look at is your router on the other side of that, because if you're feeding a connection to your router and your router's only if you've got an old router and it only has 100 megabit per second Ethernet port. Well, that's going to be your bottleneck, too. That's great. Man. Good point. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So you may want to upgrade something. Um, I would upgrade the cable modem if I were him. Yeah. 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 It, it didn't. I, I, I'm not sure what model it is, but it, sure. Yeah. That just yeah. jumped out at me. No, that's good. So that's probably more than you wanted to know about all the stuff on that page. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Well, hey, a deep dive into Doxis. I like it. It's good. Mm -hmm. uh, not really intentional, but hey, here we go. Uh, I, I, that happens sometimes when we give John F. Braun the reins. I like it. It's good. It took us on a little tour. That's great. Uh, we've got a couple of tips. We will go to Todd, uh, and actually we've got more than a couple. We've got, I think three tips left. Todd points out, he says, I meet with my boss once a week for about four hours where we are each on MacBook pros, depending on the location. Uh, I share with him my screen either via Slack, via a Slack video call. Um, if we're in the same room, uh, I will use either Apple TV to a large screen TV. So AirPlay to an Apple TV to a large screen TV or uh, with a USB-C dongle to HDMI, 
I'll drive my uh, the, the screen directly on the large screen TV. It says I always start on my battery and thought I would share some observations about each of these three scenarios before plugging in. I can go two to three hours on whatever MacBook Pro it is, but it's fine because it's always the same one. So he goes two to three hours sharing his screen via Slack. Okay, he can go two hours. So less if he's driving the screen directly from his Mac with an HDMI cable. And if he's doing airplay to the Apple TV, he never needs to plug in. He can go at least the four hours, if not more, uh, doing it airplay to the Apple TV. So this makes sense, right? Because if he's doing it via Slack, he's probably using a lot of G, a lot of CPU to compress things down. And, you know, like we are here when we do our, our video calls every week, John, that uses a lot of CPU to, to crunch the video and maybe a little GPU, but tends to be more CPU than GPU, uh, just the way the, the codecs all work. And so uh, so that makes sense. Driving the display directly from his Mac. Also makes sense because that's going to use the GPU. You're running two monitors. So that's also driving more and then going airplay to the Apple TV. Well, you've offloaded it to another piece of hardware. So the Apple TV is uh, is doing it and you're not driving anything extra, really. I mean, it's a Wi-Fi connection to the Apple TV or a network connection, presumably Wi-Fi, because you're probably not plugged into Ethernet. So. That makes sense, but that's good to know. I never, I don't know that I, I ever would have stopped to think about that being like airplay being more battery efficient than plugging directly in HDMI, but it does make sense now that, you know, we stop and think about it. So thanks for the tip, Todd. I like that. Right. Makes sense. Right, John. Yeah. I remember, um, one point. So using something like iStat menus, I, I actually determined that if you have, a network volume attached via Wi-Fi, well, duh, the radio is going to be taking more power. And you can see that in something like iStat menus. Oh, that so makes sense. If you don't need a net, if you don't need a network volume mounted, don't. Yeah. Right. Whether it's wired or wireless, but especially wireless because it keeps the radio busy. That makes and, sense. Uh, it otherwise may not have to be busy. Huh. Yeah, I like it. All right. Cool. Um, back to our friend Mace that catalyzed our big, long, uh, cable modem discussion. Thank you again for that. Uh, he wrote and asked us, he says, I often start a terminal session today at the top of the terminal window. I got the message. You have mail. Uh, he says, I was able to find out that the mail command M A I L in the terminal will list my mail. He says there were about 30 messages over the last four days. And in each of them, uh, something was listed about sudo, S-U-D-O, requires a terminal to prompt for password. And he says there was evidence in the email to suggest that it was sent from a cron job. I did cron tab space dash L, which is how you list all the cron jobs on your computer. And this is important. Uh, he says, and I found a couple of entries that I certainly didn't make by hand. I can't figure out what these entries are for. Now, Cron is an old Unix, sort of the staple of Unix that allows your machine or you to schedule your machine to do tasks on a timed basis. And it is used by tons of different things in the Unix world. And for a long time, it was used in Mac OS. It's not used by Mac OS anymore. Uh, the operating system, they moved to using launch D, which is why we say go run Lingon and it will show you all those things. That's why we mentioned that earlier in the show. 
But it cron is still there in Mac OS. They say it's deprecated. I don't know that they're ever going to actually remove it because it's such a foundational part of Unix. However, what we're about to tell you might lend great strength to the argument that Apple should remove it because he saw two entries in his cron tab that were for uh, something called conf up C O N F U P. It was in users uh, in his user folder in the applications and then conf up C O N F U P. I did a little bit of searching and conf up is a virus or a Trojan horse or something. So whatever this was, however, it got onto his machine. It immediately put a cron entry in to schedule to run itself on uh on reboot and also every uh, 30 minutes, I want to say every 1440 uh, seconds, right? Am I looking at that right? I don't know, whatever it is. Uh, it, it's running fairly regularly. That's bad. So uh, don't forget to run malware bytes. Um, and if you have conf up on there, it, it should be in your applications folder. You can you can just remove it. But running malware bytes, hopefully malware bytes would would catch this. He said that he runs malware bytes regularly, but he said also said those emails had only been there for four days. So it's possible it you know had come in recently, and if he hadn't run malware bytes uh, scan in four days, it wouldn't have yet found it. So hopefully malware bytes found it for him, but. Um, but run malware bytes. And I think they're not a current sponsor, but I think their deal at malwarebytes.com slash MGG still works. So I will put that in the show notes and, uh, and you can all check it out. So sweet. Uh, Oh gosh, I feel like I've buried the lead John, uh, because my favorite tip is next. I had no idea you could do this, even though it's right there in an Apple knowledge base article. So Scott wrote us and he very uh, astutely asked us if there was a way to automate backing up text substitutions. Now, two episodes ago, we had somebody that was asking us if it was even possible to back up your text substitutions. And I'm talking about kind of the lightweight text expander that lives in uh, Mac OS. So if you go to system preferences, keyboard and you go to text, not shortcuts, but text, you'll see you have all these text. Uh, you have the ability to put in text substitutions. And this alone may be a huge tip for you if you didn't know that this was here, um, because you can put in a little shortcut and then have it expand to things. And the nice part about this is it will sync with iCloud and it's available on all your devices, including your default iOS keyboard. So super handy. Uh, someone was asking a couple episodes ago how to back it up. Scott today is asking how to automate the backup of this, which sort of sounds like the same question. And it, to me, I thought it was, but it's not because Scott points out that you can back these up. I had no idea that this was possible, even though as he very much points out, it is right there in an Apple knowledge base article. And the way that you do it is you open up that window, you go to the text thing in keyboard system preferences shortcuts, and you highlight all of them uh, by doing a command A, select all, and then drag to the desktop or wherever you want the backup to exist, and you will be left with text substitutions.plist. And yes, you hmm. can drag it back in to restore them. I know, but <laughs> you're... you're <laughs> Your comment, John, was the same as mine. Like, huh, 
Who knew? Well, evidently, a lot of people knew if they read Apple's knowledge base about it. But I had no idea. I don't think there's a way to automate this. He he uh, because I can't find the file that it actually lives in. Uh, at least I've not been able to find the file that it actually lives in. But I think uh, so. Scott's looking for a way to automate this. So we'll leave that as a geek challenge. If you know, that would be great. But uh, but yeah, pretty cool. Right, John? Yeah, there it is. There it is. On my way to P list, which is the default. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Yeah. Oh, so you just dragged one out. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and it's on my desktop and it has a little icon with the word P list on it. But <laughs> but yours is named after the um Yes. After the thing because you you only dragged one out or maybe you only have one. Interesting. Right. So that might be an even better way to do this so that you back them up individually and you can drag them back in individually. Of course, it's a little more of a manual process. If you have multiples selected, John, you'll get text substitutions.plist is what you'll get there. So hmm. I know. Who knew? Right. Pretty good. Okay. Well, that's uh, I think that's going to have to do it for us today, Mr. Braun. It's, um, you know, it's how it goes. But it's, it's, it's I like I learned my five things. Did you learn your five things? That's mm -hmm. that's the whole point. That's why we get together. That's why we do it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for uh, those of you in the chat room at live.macgeekab.com or in our various live streams on YouTube or Facebook, helping keep the comments coming in and helping us flesh out the show notes in real time. We really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's good stuff. Thanks to all of our sponsors. Of course, eero.com slash MGG, barebones.com, lino.com slash MGG, and jamf.com slash MGG. Very uh, thankful to have all of those sponsors here thanks to all of our premium listeners we have a list of you that we will thank next week um but uh, that's it macgeekup.com slash premium so thank you so much to all of you who uh, who support us that way thanks really though to, like we always say this it takes everything sending in your questions to feedback at macgeekup.com that's important right Feedback at MacGeekCap.com? Feedback at MacGeekCap.com. That's correct. Unless you're one of the aforementioned pre premium listeners, and then you get premium at MacGeekCap.com. And we answer those first. Although, we try to answer everything. And these days, we've been getting pretty good at making sure we do. So, it's good. Uh, we would love your reviews. We keep getting reviews. So, please, MacGeekCap.com slash reviews. We would love those five-star reviews uh, in the Apple Podcast Store. It really makes a difference. And we've got some more of those that we'll read next week, too. So, thank you, thank you, thank you to everybody who's doing that stuff for us. Um, like I said, it's it all works together. You all rock. So, uh, I think that's what I got, John. You got anything else before we, uh, before we head out here? Nope. All right. Well, thanks to all of our sponsors in the podcast marketplace. Smile at smilesoftware.com slash podcast. Otherworld Computing at maxsales.com. All good stuff. We've got a couple new ones coming on, too, which is great to see. Nice to see folks expanding their businesses, figuring that out these days. We're all figuring a lot out these days. That's for sure. I hope you all stay uh, safe, stay healthy. Stay productive enough to pass the days and, of course, don't get caught. See you next week. Bye, John. Made up.